So usually, during the retreat, I have been using the words mindfulness and awareness synonymously. And generally that's suitable. Tonight I want to speak about awareness as a process and mindfulness as one function in that process. So I want to speak about five keys for unlocking your heart. Initially when we hear about the Dharma, through a talk or read a book or however we access it and begin to practice, we, we latch on to some technique that we make a great deal of effort with and hope for some special effects. And mature practice doesn't look anything like that. Mature practice is really when there's an ease in uh, using whatever means you have acquired, skills you have acquired, to be interested in each present moment and be engaged with life in a way that is wise and compassionate. So, this momentum in practice occurs because there is a development of the mind, factors of mind, that we become, they gain some maturity, and they're in balance. And as Sairavatajaniya said, that we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom more as a marathon rather than a sprint. So, these five keys for unlocking your heart are called the five controlling or the five spiritual faculties. And they are sadha, which is usually translated as faith, but as an activity is really trusting. Virya, which is usually translated as energy, but as a, a verb is really persevering. Sati is mindfulness, usually translated as mindfulness, but it is both remembering and observing. Samadhi, usually called concentration, is really the stabilizing of the mind. And Panya, uh, translated as wisdom, is really illuminated understanding. So I want to speak about these um, five conditions because they have a cause-effect relationship, meaning with faith we make effort, with effort we become mindful, with the continuity of mindfulness we develop stability of mind, and the stability of mind, or the collectedness of mind, sees things and understands them more accurately, and when we get a boost of understanding, we feel more confident, faithful, practice more. So they have this cause-effect relationship, and it can only develop gradually and cyclically. So we begin with a small amount of trust or confidence and build a little energy, a little mindfulness, a little stability, a little understanding, and that supports more trust, and we make more effort, we have more mindfulness. And so it's quite naturally a growing momentum 
to the development and our skill in balancing these five factors. The first of these keys is sadha, or faith, confidence, assurance, trusting. Now, the thing about faith is that it's not necessarily a belief in this practice, but it is the energy, it's the movement, it's the hearts seeking the good, seeking what is wholesome. So even when we hear a speaker that we resonate with as, that's good, that's not just that they're a good speaker, but there's something wholesome and good in what they're saying, then we can have faith in that speaker. But when we get a glimpse of our own heart and the potential of our own heart to awaken, to become more understanding and wise and act compassionately, more uh, energetic, then that wholesomeness is what we seek through trust, confidence, sadha. So, after uh, my years at the university, I ended up in a commune in central Maine, and the glue that held this commune together was we were all deadheads and Pink Floydians. <laughs> and that was our... Uh, that was our that was our spiritual practice. <laughs> so there was one woman in the in the uh, commune who got this book called Beginning to See, and it was little one-liners with little one little line drawings about mindfulness. And in the back of it was an address you could write for more information. She did and found out that there was a retreat going on just a couple hours south of where we lived in central Maine and she wrote and found that she could go to this two-week retreat and I thought she said <laughs> she was going on something like a holiday so I said well I'd like to go on a holiday <laughs> and uh, so on the appointed day we drove to the coast to an old Catholic monastery when we walked into the lobby, uh, there was nobody around. And in the left was a large dining room, and on the right we saw a door, and we looked in, and it was the old chapel, and in it were 50 or 60 people sitting on the floor uh, meditating. And when they came out, nobody would look at us. They were all wrapped <laughs> up in blankets. They were shuffling around like ghosts or something. It was in you know, the day after Thanksgiving in coastal Maine, it was pretty chilly. And um, we looked at the schedule on the door, you know, you wake up at 4.30 and you do your yoga and whatever, and you sit and walk, and then you have breakfast, and you sit and walk, and sit and walk, and then you have lunch, and you sit and walk, and sit and walk, and sit, and, walk, and, sit, and then you have some tea, and then you sit and walk, and then 7.30, talk. Ah. So we looked at each other and said, well, at least we get an hour a day to talk. <laughs> which really meant we got an hour a day to listen. <laughs> Nevertheless, there we were, and prior to that time, 
I didn't have any interest in spiritual life, uh, or didn't know anybody who meditated, didn't know a thing about Buddhism, never heard of it, and didn't know anybody who meditated. It was just like, what was I doing there? Anyway, we paid our fee, and there we were. As I mentioned the other night, it was sheer and utter torture. <laughs> the body was not used to sitting on the floor. That was screaming. And the mind was kind of detoxing and cleaning out, and that was not happy either. So, But somehow I kind of persevered, because each evening we would hear this talk. 7.30, and it was the standard Dharma talks, you know, Four Noble Truths, Mindfulness, Seven Factors of Awakening, the hindrances, you know, usual stuff. But when I heard the articulation of the Dharma, I heard for the first time what I'd always known to be true. I'd never read it, I'd never heard it, but when I did hear it, it was like, right, that's the way it is inside me. And we returned, after two weeks, we returned to the commune, and while everyone was doing the same old, same old, and same people, and we were long-time buddies, friends, uh, our perspective had changed considerably. We just had a different view of ourselves, and of life, and what's going on here, and slowly that was the beginning of our drifting away from the commune and, and eventually ending up more in the Dharma camp, if you will. So I reflected for some time on what, what actually happened at that retreat, that I just kind of took my life, which was going nowhere, we just kind of dissipated, enjoying having fun, and, and just went onto this path that was not necessarily straight and narrow, but was definitely heading in a direction with some purpose. And I understand it now as it was the awakening of faith. I saw there's some potential in this teachings that I resonated with that had a purpose, it was meaningful, it was challenging, it was wholesome. And it was just, there wasn't any question about it. I didn't have any doubt, ever about the Dharma. It just seemed like that's it. So, after that I just kept doing more retreats and went on staff at the meditation center. And early, early in my time in the meditation center, I was, um, I think it was one of the first days that I was there on staff. And I'd only done this one two-week retreat, then I went on staff. It was just open. You know, it's like I, I really got pulled in. And uh, so uh, I was up in the attic with uh, Rodney Smith, who's a uh, Dhamma teacher in Seattle, and uh, he was on staff. And uh, we were having this, you know, really lively discussion about Nibbana, which we knew nothing about. <laughs> but he reminded me some years later that I said then with utter and absolute conviction, I have no doubt that I will realize the Dharma in this lifetime. <coughs> and I had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> and I did not know what would be involved. 
at all. But that kind of confidence and conviction and faith doesn't rely on knowledge. It relies on an inner experience of connecting with this wholesomeness and one's own, a recognition of one's own aspiration in that direction. So I was, I was remembering that we read this book about mindfulness, little one-liners about mindfulness, and it was very clear and very, very accurate and really good. But it didn't, it didn't move me to, to do anything. It didn't arouse faith. It was just knowledge. But with the experience of hearing and practicing, even unsuccessfully, I mean, just not, not practicing very well, but still, there was this awakening. So, this kind of movement of the heart, this, this opening of the heart, really, is uh, helped clarify uh, my spiritual objective. Really, what I mean is it, it set a course, a direction, that I wanted to grow in my life, is towards this wholesomeness. And the end result was, over the next few years, cleaned up my act a lot. And just kind of slowly stopped using and started meditating more and just kind of came out of the fog and the dissipation of a drifting lifestyle and met a whole new community of people that had similar aspirations. Not only did it provide a spiritual compass, a direction to go, but it um, awoke this aspiration to move along this path with some, what I'm going to call, clear resolve. Some resolve in the mind. Now, resolve is not tightness, it's not striving, it's not grim, it's just a clear knowing. This is where I'm going. And it doesn't matter what the obstacles are, or how long it takes, or, you know, it's not like it's a hurry, it's not, it's not even an accomplishment, it's just, that, that's where I'm going. That's how it's going to be. And there's just this confidence in the heart. It's not wavering, it's not shaking, it's just... And so whatever it is that calls your heart, that calls your attention, that hooks you into the Dharma somehow, whether it's your own experience or something you hear or the, whatever it is, you know, check and see if it awakens this kind of aspiration, a kind of direction, uh, a sense of resolve or commitment, and a trust. You know, a trust both in the teachings, the, the process, the practice, yourself. Not that there's never any doubt. You know, there is going to be doubt. You know, a, a shift like that, something that's going to take your, going to be a path for life, it's going, to, it's going to have to confront your conditioning. And as the Buddha said, a lot of the Dharma and practicing the Dharma goes against the stream of your conditioning. And so, of course, when we meet our conditioning and the Dharma is kind of going in this direction and our conditioning is pulling us in that direction, there's going to be a tug of war, there's going to be some 
friction and you know, through practice we resolve doubt. Often we cannot think it out. We cannot think our way out of doubt. We can only continue practice and if we do, the practice will resolve the doubt. We can borrow confidence from others. We can read a book to support us. We can talk to a teacher. We can talk with other spiritual, you know, Kalyanamitas, spiritual friends to get some support or encouragement, advice. But nevertheless, we still have to kind of do the work and see how it moves us beyond the place of doubt. So faith is not really hope. It's not really based on knowledge. It's not just raw desire. It's not even a promise. But it is does involve and is supported by logic and reasoning. So it ignites our personal confidence, so to speak. And I remember when I was when I first went to the meditation center, soon after I got there, the first Burmese Buddhist monk to come to America that, that I know of um, came to the meditation center to visit for a week during the annual three-month course. And we were told about this monk. He you know, was a monk in Burma and was a great scholar and was a well-known or, you know, was known. But, you know, in his, I don't know, early 30s, mid-30s, he decided to practice, really, what he was teaching, went into a cave and stayed for 16 years practicing. At which time, or at, at which time, he realized that his teacher had passed away and he came out of the cave, went back to the monastery to find that his teacher had just passed away and he spent a year out of the cave taking care of the monastery and getting a new abbot and seeing that things were still running and went back in the cave for another 17 years. So he was coming to teach us how to breathe. <laughs> how to be aware or something. You know, and he was so striking. He was just so striking. He was just, I mean, just a small, wizened, old monk. Lived in a cave for so long that he had to wear sunglasses all the time. You know, day and night he was wearing sunglasses. And I didn't know, I, I didn't know what a monk was. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know anything about it. It's just that I wanted what he had. And it was some kind of presence, some kind of serenity, some kind of ease, being very self-possessed. He just, he just was himself in a dramatic, well, it was very simple, but to me it was like distinctive way. And I just wanted, I, I wanted whatever he had. I didn't want to go live in a cave, but I wanted the quality of mind but, even though I had that kind of aspiration, that kind of whatever, I, I didn't know how to do that. But it took eight years from that point before I was finally able to go to Burma and ordain and become a monk. And I think that it was eight years of just, well, preparing the heart and preparing the conditions and preparing my understanding and letting the conditions come to support my aspiration. And when the, when the conditions were there to support it, the decision was already made. 
because that was the direction my path was going. So I say that because a lot of us feel uh, some faith, some trust, we know the direction, and yet we haven't fulfilled our aspiration. We just, we just see that there's room for improvement. We know there's something more for our practice. And we can't hurry it. You can't push it. You can't make it happen. But you can nourish and nurture your aspiration beyond what you're currently capable of manifesting. And when the conditions are right to support it, then you can take advantage of it. You'll recognize it. So this is faith, the first of the keys for unlocking the heart. 